Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Spy Talk, a podcast at the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, national security, and military operations with Jeff Stein and Gene Meserve. Hi there, I'm Jeff Stein. Welcome to Spy Talk. And I'm Gene Meserve. Great to have you with us. Well, there's been a lot of developments on the intelligence front, of course, most of them rotating on the dire situation in Afghanistan. We learned of the secret visit of CIA Director Bill Burns to Doha for a meeting with the Taliban de facto leader, Abdul Ghani Baradar. We also learned about CIA and special operations teams slipping into Afghanistan and rescuing people. Speaking of the nightmare in Kabul, I I talked this week with The Washington Post's Craig Whitlock about his new and stunning book, The Afghanistan Papers, A Secret History of the War, based on scores of interviews of his own, as well as the oral histories of many of the participants that he found at various government agencies and universities. It's a 20-year history of secrets, lies, and self-delusion through both Republican and Democratic administrations. The Obama administration recognized this as a problem that we're allied with these warlords, and yet they could never really get the CIA to cut the cord. The the CIA had longstanding relationships with a lot of these guys, uh, had them on cash payrolls, and couldn't bring themselves to end that. That's the Washington Post, Craig Whitlock. Gene? And that interview is coming up later. First, The Department of Homeland Security has issued a bulletin warning of possible terror activity around the anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. Among the many government agencies tracking intelligence around the threat, the U.S. Coast Guard. When you think of an intelligence agency, you probably don't think of the Coast Guard, but in fact, it has a broad intelligence mission and has some unique capabilities and authorities. I talked about it with the Commandant of the Coast Guard, Admiral Carl Schultz, and asked him first if the Coast Guard had changed its posture because of the recent DHS warning. A seminal event like the 20th anniversary, you know, probably accentuated by, you know, some of the activities that are going on as we, uh, you know, get American citizens and uh, SIVs, folks that supported uh, our efforts here in Afghanistan. And I think it's not a stretch of the imagination. I think there should be some elevated risk. So I would say you know, we're paying attention every day, but I think with the anniversary event, you know, paying a little bit more attention in our piece, the wet piece of the Homeland Security Department's mission set. Are you seeing anything suspicious? A probably wouldn't speak about that in this in this location. I think we're, we're watching normal things. I mean, the maritime domain, I think, is always a rich threat vector. Let me ask you about another current event, and that's Haiti. Coast Guard and- helicopters on the scene almost immediately after the earthquake. What kind of intelligence are you doing around Haiti right now? Yeah, Gene, Haiti is um, obviously, you know, when you look at the distance from Haiti to the United States, you're in 650, 700 miles. We've had a, an ongoing uh, threat of maritime migration. We pay attention to Haiti every day from a Coast Guard intelligence perspective. I think post-assassination, we're watching very closely for indications and warnings of possible uptick in maritime migrations. We're paying attention and we have additional cutters off the coast of Haiti just to be ready for that contingency. So I think that some people are surprised to hear that the Coast Guard actually does intelligence. They think of you guys as being 
rescue operation or a law enforcement operation, but not so much an intelligence operation. How far back does that go? Well, that's a that's a great question. And, you know, I could give you a 231 year answer and I'll, and I'll tease out that. And then I'll tell you, you know, in terms of a name membership, the intelligence community, we were coming up on the 20th anniversary here in December. But, you know, you go back to the Revenue Marine Service days of, you know, 1790, and Washington was petitioned by Alexander Hamilton for some Revenue Marine Service, what we called cutters. The captains would walk the docks in the New England corridor, the Mid-Atlantic, and that was intelligence gathering. And you think about, you know, sort of the evolution of that, you think about into our, our, our mission set. You go back to uh, the early years of the Second World War, you know, Coast Guard frogmen were really, uh, they were part of the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services, you know, the predecessor to the CIA. And really, the OCI was their short predecessor about a year, and that was kicked off by uh, by Franklin Roosevelt. But General Donovan, Bill Donovan, was partnering with the Coast Guard Commandant Admiral Wasey at the time. And really, some of the origins of the SEALs and the uh, Special Ops community uh, swimmers tie back to about 120 Coast Guard frogmen that were sort of doing pointy end of the spare things in places like India and Europe and Burma. So so we, we've been through this for a long time. And then 20 years, this December 28th, we'll be a named member of the National Intelligence Community, which is a whole different conversation. And during Prohibition, you guys did a lot of intelligence. Absolutely. You look at that, you know, 20s to early 30s here in Prohibition. We were the first signals or excuse me, uh, there's really a ship out there, signals platform, collection platform. That was the first U.S such capability. And we did a lot of terrific work with code breaking. Matter of fact, we announced last year the naming of the 11th National Security Cutter currently under construction for Elizabeth Smith Reitman, who was uh, really a national treasure in terms of being a cryptanalyst. She did some terrific work in those prohibition years. That work and work with her husband rolled into the Second World War, did some really key crypto work coding uh, German codes. Some of our listeners might have seen the PBS series Atlantic Crossing. And in that, there is one episode which deals with Germans landing on Long Island during World War II. And the Coast Guard caught them, right? Right. It's based in in real history. We, We had our beach patrols, you know, back in those war years. You know, I look at the modern Coast Guard today, we're about 42,000 plus or minus men and women active duty in uniform. You know, back there, Admiral Way, she swelled the size of the Coast Guard, about 160,000. We were manning Coast Guard cutters. We were manning Navy ships, dead destroyer escorts, uh, Army vessels. You know, that was the, the high watermark in terms of number of Coasties. But part of that included beach patrols uh, looking for the, the German saboteurs, as, as you sort of alluded to there. You think about where we were in the 80s, the narcotics business. My, my career, commission career, spans from about... 18, 19 May of 20, or excuse me, 1983 to today, 38 years. And I look at the evolution of the drug mission there. We look at the migration smuggling. I've watched intelligence grow over that. Now we're out there uh, surveilling vast regions. Two thirds of the world is water. You know, how do you police the Eastern Pacific Ocean, the Caribbean basin? It's like policing North America with five police cars for speeders. That's the magnitude of it. So that is, you do it by intelligence. You do it by using national technical means, signal type capabilities, you do it with sophisticated cutters, our national security cutters. You do operate internationally. I read that your mission is to protect the U.S. economic and security interests in any maritime region, including international waters. You have some pretty broad authorities, don't you? Yes, ma'am. I think, Gene, you think about the Coast Guard, as you say, you know, some think it's 
the territorial waters of the United States. I, you know, we've got a national security cutter today sailing with the 7th Fleet, working under uh, the Indo-Pacific Command, specifically the 7th Fleet, and doing a lot of interesting things in that part of the world. They did some cooperative stuff with Taiwan in, in recent days here. They'll be doing some things with the Japanese. We'll be doing some capacity building with ASEAN partners in the region to fortify you know, their ability to stand up to uh, you know, antagonistic, coercive regional actors. So yeah, we are very much a global Coast Guard and very much enabled by intelligence on all that work team. And you can board ships, correct? Even not U.S. flag ships. Do I have that right? Yeah, so we have a lot of authorities on that front. I would tell you, arguably, if you look at U.S. law enforcement agencies, I don't think any law enforcement agency in the U.S., local, state, federal, has as broad authorities as us. So as a armed force, you know, we can do what we call a right of approach. We can approach a ship at sea on international waters and then basically determine its mission and, if necessary, go on, on board to determine what it's doing. That's that's a pretty broad application. And has tremendous intelligence ramifications. There, there's a lot there. And generally, if there's something at sea, we, we have a pretty good chance of being able to get on board to determine what's going on. I think we're a, a bit of a special tool in the toolkit for national security. Being a law enforcement, being military, you know, posse comitatus keeps my DOD colleagues, brethren, from doing law enforcement. There's a lot in that conversation in the small service of the Coast Guard that you bring to the fight. What do the other guys have? So, for instance, if you've got your eye on drug smugglers or people who are trafficking humans, what kind of intelligence capabilities do they have that they're using against you? Well, I think what we see for the counter-narcotics mission, you know, if we go back to the vastness, the Eastern Pacific Ocean, let's talk that. So we're talking California south to Peru. You can take the entire United States, the physical geography, if you had a map, cut out a map, say it's proportional, you can lay the United States in that Eastern Pacific Ocean. There's still a lot of blue shelves. That's a hugely vast area. You know, they'll use a, a fast boat out of uh, Columbia. And that fast boat, you know, 35 feet across the water on multiple engines, might be a low profile boat that has a very low signature in terms of wake. They'll load it up with, you know, 500 to 2,500 kilograms of cocaine. They'll use other fishing boats. They have a network of observers out there that report back, hey, where is the, where are the Coast Guard ships operating? Where do they see aircraft operating? So for us, you know, it's um, it's a bit of surprise where we do our work. You know, we surveil at high altitude with, uh, you know, Coast Guard maritime patrol aircraft. We tap into DOD means. We uh, scan Eagle is a small capability, small UAS that we launch off the back of that NSC increases the radius of action about 75, 80 miles from the cutter. So you piece all that together, plus the ability to tap into some national technical means and SIGINT and things like that. And you got a pretty robust capability there. But what capability do they have? You mentioned they have lookouts. Sure. Yeah. So but they do have, they also have some technical means that they can deploy to try and foil your efforts to stop them? You know, in terms of technical means for detecting us, I'm not familiar with that. What they use is technical means where they'll They'll have a load of drugs. They'll use a lot of these uh, these buoys. They'll weight the drugs down so the what drugs go below the surface. They can pop a buoy up and they go back and relocate the drugs. We found a lot of uh, those type of technologies out there in terms of counter surveillance. I'm not familiar with you know UAS drone stuff operating at the distances we are from shore. What they do pretty pervasively is that ability to penetrate law enforcement agencies and other countries, you know, you think about the corrosive effects 
in that Central American corridor, you think about the Northern Triangle regions, what the drug does, is it, it fuels instability, it fuels corruption. So I think it's who are your trusted partners down there? We're seeing great contributions from our partners, but we're very judicious about what is information we're able to share legally and what you'd want to share, given some of that propensity for corruption in those in parts of the world here with some of the folks you partner with too here. So it's a, I think that piece is probably as problematic as their counter technical means to surveil us. Have they tried to infiltrate the Coast Guard? You know, Gene, I have not seen that. I think we have a pretty judicious set of standards here where um, folks that operate in this intelligence space, whether it's the national intelligence element or the law enforcement element, there's different levels of security clearances. But uh, like all NIC members and law enforcement agencies, you got to judiciously, you know, put people through background checks, upgrades, training. People work generally on teams. So I have not seen that type of thing. You know, obviously, you know, there's been a focus on extremism in the military writ large. And I would say. And you've had a case, too. We're not exempt from that. We had a case a couple of years back and there's a former Coast Guardsman, you know, doing some time in jail, a little bit of a landmark case in terms of ideologies versus manifested actions. But we detected that through some of our internal insider threat capabilities you know, our Coast Guard investigative service. And really, that's a bit of an unfortunate story. Remember, it served in two other armed forces before us, but we caught them and there's accountability there. But um, yeah, I think there's always that risk and you always got to keep your guard up. But yeah, and I, I take that back. You know, I, I go back to my earliest days in the Keys and we had some, you know, I actually rolled out on uh, in the Dry Tortugas and there were some Coast Guardsmen that were manning the light back in the day of Man Lighthouses and actually had a big stash of pot out there. You know, I got an order from my skipper. I was number two in charge of a small cutter and says, hey, go down to the Scotty's Hardware and buy a bunch of machetes and some other tools and we're, and we're getting underway in two hours. And I'm like, I can't tell you what else. And, you know, we plowed our way out there, banged through the seas and whacked through a lot of stuff. And here we found a big stash of pot. So I would say we have had some examples of Coasties getting caught up in illicit activities. But what I was earlier in my career, I have not seen that in recent years. I think the quality of our people have never been better. The Arctic. Are there special challenges? We have the, the Russian military building up up there, the Chinese expressing more and more interest in the region. You have, as I understand it, one cutter that can get through that tough ice up there. How hard is it for you to gather intelligence and keep an eye on what's happening in this critical region? Not sure if I coined the phrase. I've used it a lot and possibly coined the phrase. When I talk about the Arctic, I say presence equals influence. So when you're there, you're there. And when you're there, you see things that you don't see otherwise. You know, there's some ability to collect data and other things from the Arctic. There's you know, communications is challenging the Arctic. We're working with our DOD colleagues and other interested parties, you know, in terms of the orbits of lower satellites and things. So there's there's a bit of a dearth of, uh, of maritime domain awareness up there. As you mentioned, we have a paucity of, of capabilities. We have two icebreakers in the Coast Guard, one heavy, the Polar Star, which was built, you know, 45 years ago. And then we're stretching it out through what we call um a service life extension program for about five more years as a bridging strategy. The good news is we've been funded and we've got a shipbuilder that's building us some new polar security cutters. will be really capable of 460 foot ships to go to the high latitudes, the Arctic, the Antarctic. Yeah, the Arctic is geostrategically never more important. You mentioned Russia. Russia is looking at the Arctic economically, you know, in terms and of militarily. Oh, and very much so military reestablishing bases, look as a threatscape 
across the high latitudes. You know, we see increasing presence of Russian long-range bombers off, uh, you know, ALCOM, the Alaska Command. This is a lot more activity out of the long-range Russian, Russian military uh, aviation capabilities. China, a self-declared, you know, near-Arctic nation, is interested in the, the energy capabilities of, you know, access in the Arctic. And uh, they're historically up there, if not every year, you know, seven or eight out of 10 years, they're up in the, the Alaska Arctic, the Western Arctic. And you are the eyes and ears for the U.S. up there, right? Yeah, the Navy operates with Ice Edge with a sub. You know, I think it's on an every other year battle rhythm here. I could be wrong on that, but I think it's every other year. Yeah, we are sort of that forward presence. And then I walk it back to that. And you haven't got much of one. You've only got maximum two cutters and usually you only have one. When presence equals influence, Gene, you know, there's there's not a winning narrative that we need to build out more Arctic maritime capability. The good news is we started it. I'm encouraged that we're having the conversations. We're late to need, Gene. You know, we're kind of late. Right now, our, our vision is really limited up there. Right. Well, our, our capability is is limited. And, and when your capabilities are limited, your knowledge, your domain awareness, your vision, I think that's a fair statement. Yeah, It's a pretty big gap, isn't it, given the strategic and military importance of the Arctic? It's a pretty big gap in an area that I think just becomes increasingly geostrategically critical. And then you say the ice extent is diminished over a good part of the last two decades. So there's water where there used to be ice, you know, and you say, well, maybe you don't need breakers. Arguably, and when it's fast ice, that's a different environment than moving ice. Moving ice, actually, you probably need more breakers up there. So this is a critical conversation for the nation. The good news is I think we're dialed in on, on the Hill and the administration. Everyone recognizes the need. You just can't build a ship any faster than you can build a ship, you know. So you mentioned there are challenges with communication up there because of satellite coverage. Does that mean there's also difficulty gathering satellite surveillance information, imagery? Yeah, I think I think there's probably some truth in that. And you're also looking at space-based capabilities. There's a lot of customers, you know, with, with things going on across the globe here. And, you know, the pacing threat in our national security strategy of a increasingly sort of assertive, coercive China, you know, Russia, meddlesome. I think a lot of those national capabilities assets are dialed in on certain problems. That's, you know, where does the Coast Guard fit in that? We get access to some of that. But we may not always be on the, on the leading edge of the, the of the national priorities and the you know the national intelligence program framework. WMD. Let's talk about that for a minute. I remember years ago going to the port of Long Beach, and it was really a needle in a haystack exercise looking for something that might be coming into the country. Have our capabilities improved? Are you, I know this isn't exclusively a Coast Guard function, this is Customs and Border Protection as well, but have your capabilities to detect dangerous things coming into the country improved? You have to look at that through a couple of different lenses. I think when you think about a weapon of mass destruction, you think about, let's say you put that on a container ship. We now have container ships that carry 23,000 containers, these ultra large ships. And, you know, and you think you've, the heft of them, you know, they're the size, you know, they're 11, 1300 feet long. You know, the beam on them is tremendous. They don't just come across the Atlantic and make a port call in Savannah. They go to Savannah, they go to the Port of Virginia, they'll go up to New York, they'll make three or four port calls to offload that massive amount of container traffic. So, what we've embraced is we don't inspect a ton of, a lot of containers, it's a very small single digit percentage. You know, we, the Coast Guard, look at containers carrying certain volatile chemicals and things like hazardous containers. 
But what we do do is we have technology in the ports. Every container that leaves a port on a rail car or on a truck bed, you know, goes through a radiation portal monitor. So we detect indicators of, of, of a hot box, as we call it, you know, and then where, where I think we really fight this is where this whole conversation is sort of oriented around is intelligence. You know, we, CBP, can see the origins of every container that gets on every ship that comes to our port. So they're studying patterns of life on where containers, a box that comes anonymously from somewhere where containers from that port generally coming to a port in this U.S. don't normally show those patterns. You know, you start to see that anomaly detection. So it's really big data analytics. And CBP does a lot of that. We support them. We screen every commercial vessel, more than 100,000 vessels. We screen the crews on those vessels. We screen every passenger coming into a U.S. port, you know, whether it's on the cruise industry or other type passenger vessels. So we have a very active intelligence role looking at people, vessels. CBP is looking more so at the cargo. We're looking at the hazmat cargo. So I'd say I think we've evolved our capability in terms of just inspecting boxes, physical inspection, still very small numbers, but that's not the game. The game is really big data analytics and intelligence-driven operations to inform that today. That was the Commandant of the Coast Guard, Admiral Carl Schultz. I asked him, Jeff, what was his greatest area of concern, and he said cyber. He's worried about the security of the Coast Guard's own systems, some of which are old, but also about attacks on critical infrastructure in the maritime domain. For instance, on the systems that control those massive cranes that unload cargo ships, shut them down and you shut down a port. One challenge, he says, is finding and retaining the talent to do cybersecurity. The temptation of working for higher pay in the private sector lures capable folks away. It is a problem you hear about over and over throughout the federal government. I found the interview really interesting. I learned a lot from it. I hadn't known about the Coast Guard's role during World War II, frogmen, code breaking and so on. And I think uh, we all learned a lot more about how the Coast Guard is plugged into the entire intelligence community. But also, he talked about the dearth of maritime information in the Arctic and that the Coast Guard or the U.S. government is just trying to catch up to the assets that Russia and others have uh, put up on the pole. And that's another thing to worry about. Absolutely, because we needed more to worry about, right? We, we worry aloud. Anyway, this is Jeff Stein. And I'm Gene Meserve. Coming up, Jeff is going to have his interview with Greg Whitlock, who talks about all the decades of U.S. involvement in Afghanistan and the lies and deceptions. And also, let me remind you, you can find Spy Talk on Substack. Look for it there. The Washington Post, Craig Whitlock is probably done more to enlighten us on the history and delusions of our long experience in Afghanistan than any other journalist working today. His new book, The Afghanistan Papers, A Secret History of the War, is out this week. It's been getting a lot of attention already, spurred, of course, by the shocking speed of the Afghan government's collapse. What I wanted to bear down on with Craig, a former colleague of mine at the Washington Post, I should say, was the role of U.S. intelligence agencies in the calamity. Was there really an intelligence failure? Craig Whitlock, welcome to Spy Talk. All hell has been breaking loose about the so-called intelligence failure in Afghanistan. 
I want to get back to this overarching question of an intelligence failure. But first, I'd like you to share some of the vivid stories from the people on the ground that really illuminate the issue. For example, there's the story you tell of Roger Pardo Mora, for example, a 38-year-old Green Beret from Connecticut who was a Yale graduate, actually a high-ranking Pentagon official whose reserve unit was called up after the 911 attacks. He had some biting things to say about the CIA. Tell us about him. Yeah, so this was a guy who had a senior civilian job in the Pentagon, but was also an Army Reserve officer in the Special Forces. And he deployed to Afghanistan, I think it was in early 2002, down to Kandahar. And his duty station was what they called the Special Forces Village at the Kandahar Airport. And you have to understand that back then there was, you know, Afghanistan was just a broken down country. The United States and its allies only had a very small number of forces in Afghanistan. They were chasing Taliban and Al-Qaeda people. But part of more was, how do I put it? He was a, a talented storyteller. And he, he wrote this long email over several days to uh, his colleagues back at the Pentagon in which he was talking about just how remote and backward Kandahar was and the scene at the Special Forces Village with these snake eater special operations forces from different countries. But he particularly had a lot of disdain for the CIA, which he said, you know, they ran around trying to dress like the locals, but as he put it, they spent most of their time shopping for handicrafts. So that's kind of a a theme, particularly in the early years, there was disdain from both some U.S. military ties, but also from American diplomats for CIA officers in the country for trying to act like they could blend in. But, you know, this was really terra incognito. Uh, you know, this is foreign territory for most Americans. You know, the, the embassy had been closed for more than a dozen years after the Soviet invasion. We really hadn't had a presence there. And so Afghanistan was truly a foreign land. And all of a sudden you had all these people jumping in, trying to figure things out. Or as Robert Gates, the former defense secretary, said, we didn't know jack shit about the Taliban after 911. I'm not sure that that is really true, because we have been pursuing the uh, al-Qaeda since at least 1998, after the U.S. Uh, embassy bombings in East Africa. So we did actually know a lot about al-Qaeda, but the point is that the early CIA people on the ground, at least the early complements of CIA officers, didn't know much about Afghanistan. They didn't speak, very few spoke any of the languages of Afghanistan. They probably could have hardly found it on a map. So they were really entrusted with a very important mission, and they didn't know where to go, and they didn't know what to do, no matter no wonder that they spent time gift shopping in a local bazaar. Anyway, there's another story you tell about Jeffrey Eggers, a Navy SEAL who served in Afghanistan and later worked on the national security staff under George W. Bush and Obama. He asked, why did we make the Taliban the enemy when we were attacked by al-Qaeda? Why did we want to defeat the Taliban? Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, well, he brings up a really good point, right? I mean, when the war started, the original objective was to uh, prevent another attack like September 11, 2001. The whole point was to go after al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden, make sure they couldn't attack the United States again. And the Taliban was sort of a secondary factor in all this. The Taliban had 
their government had played host to al-Qaeda in Afghanistan, had refused to hand over bin Laden. So as President Bush said when he announced the start of the war in October 2001, we're trying to degrade the Taliban's military capabilities, but the original objective wasn't even to knock the Taliban out of power necessarily. Now that happened pretty quickly and, and the United States was pretty happy with that result. But as Egger said, he said, look, the original enemy was al-Qaeda. It wasn't necessarily the Taliban. And yet the Taliban was eliminated for the large part from Afghanistan by the spring of 2002. By that point, just about all of the al-Qaeda leadership had either been killed, captured, or had fled Afghanistan, just like bin Laden had gone across the border to Pakistan. So their presence in Afghanistan had really dwindled down to nothing. But once we stayed there, the people we were fighting or hunting down were by and large Taliban insurgents. And that's Egger's point is the mission blurred very rapidly. And really for the most, you know, for the last 19 years, the war has been fought against Taliban figures about against Taliban insurgents, not necessarily foreign fighters who were part of Al Qaeda. So I know that sounds on one hand like an obvious point, but what Eggers is saying is why did we get drawn into this long, endless war with the Taliban when the original objective was to fight al-Qaeda? Exactly. An important question. You write that uh, the intelligence assessments of Afghanistan were increasingly dour as the war progressed. Now, let me ask you this. Right early on after 911, after we had been there a couple of months, were there ranking U.S. intelligence officials who were telling the White House that we were blurring the distinction between al-Qaeda and the Taliban? That's a really good question. I don't think it's just the beginning of the war. I think that's a concern throughout. And clearly in the early months of the war, you would hear Donald Rumsfeld, the defense secretary, and others talk about the terrorists, right? The bad guys. And they would lump together the Taliban and Al-Qaeda as the bad guys, as the terrorists. And look, I'm not trying to you know, make the Taliban out to be some great guys or something, but sure. you know, there, there, there is a clear distinction here. The Taliban didn't have Al-Qaeda's global ambition or worldview. The Taliban had not launched attacks on the United States. And you know, there's no indication that they ever wanted to do that. They were fighting for their objectives to impose their religious beliefs and ideology on Afghanistan. But you know, unlike al-Qaeda, they didn't have this global agenda. But yet, in the early years in particular, the Bush administration tended to lump all these people in, in one basket. They were all terrorists. Um, and you see this again and again in interviews in the Afghanistan papers, even from army officers on the ground, they, they would just keep talking about the bad guys and how they had a hard time figuring out who the bad guys were. They would tell intelligence officials, show me the bad guys. Who are we supposed to fight here? You know, they had a hard time distinguishing anybody. And, and even mm -hmm. Rumsfeld did. There was a memo he wrote to his senior uh, aides at the Pentagon two years into the war where he said, I have no visibility into who the bad guys are in Afghanistan. So he, here's the Secretary of Defense two years into the war. He doesn't even know how to define the enemy at that point, which you know should tell you something. Did anyone ever, and in particular from the U.S. intelligence, did anyone ever go to George W. Bush and his close circle 
which included Rumsfeld, and say, this is madness. We're really, really off course here. We've got to stop this and get out. Well, you know, I don't know, Jeff. There's no way to tell if intelligence officials ever told him this or not. There's no indication that somebody used the strong language you did. Now, whether he was getting closely guarded classified advice to that extent, you know, we'll have to wait for the history books, I think, to come out. But what the Afghanistan Papers book makes clear is that pretty soon after the invasion of Afghanistan, the entire U.S. government's attention was redirected toward Iraq, you know, that there was this enormous distraction to prepare for war in Iraq. And so everybody stopped paying attention to Afghanistan, and it was really focused on Saddam Hussein and what to do in Iraq. So the assumption at that point was the Afghanistan war was won, that we were there to try and stabilize the country with this security vacuum because al-Qaeda had left and the Taliban had been toppled from power. But I don't think anybody was really taking stock at that point in 2002, 2003 of, boy, we're making a mistake in Afghanistan. The idea back, the assumption was we had won the war, things had gone well, and everybody's attention turned toward Iraq. I guess you'd have to say that that amounts to a massive intelligence failure because no one was standing up on their hind legs and saying, this is really going south. In fact, your book, which is a marvelous and really unique accounting of what went on in Afghanistan, is drenched in a very good way with stories and anecdotes about the warning signals from Afghanistan early on. There's also a very disturbing element that you report that the U.S. intelligence and Green Beret and SEAL teams, the killer teams, were enmeshed in the corruption in Afghanistan, and often hunting down people who were being tagged by local Afghans as al-Qaeda or the Taliban, when really there was just a personal beef or a feud involved. You tell the story of Michael Matrinko, for example, who talked about the Afghans using the Americans to eliminate people who they had a beef with, telling them that they belonged to the Taliban. Can you tell us that story? Sure. Uh, Matrinko gave a long oral history interview to an association for diplomatic studies and training. It's, it's a nonprofit that for years has interviewed foreign service officers overseas. And Matrinko is a very interesting character, but also a colorful guy. He was actually in the foreign service serving in Tehran at the embassy in Iran when it was taken over. And he was held hostage with the Iranian or with U.S. hostages in Iran. But he had a, a long history of being able to speak Farsi and Dari, which is one of the national languages in Afghanistan. So he was sent to Kabul after we reopened the embassy in early 2002. He was one of, he was either one of the only or the only U.S. diplomat at that point who was fluent in the local language. And he recounted this, that he would, he would go out with these Afghan elders and talk to them. And he was one of the few Americans who could, and they would laugh about this. And they would say, look, you Americans are getting played here. You're getting told that that guy's Taliban, that guy's Al-Qaeda, but you're really just getting caught in feuds and retribution and, you know, you're, you're being manipulated. Uh, so that was clear from the outset. And yet I think, I think that happened through 20 years of war. The United States have never really understood Afghanistan. We never developed uh, language skills among our, our diplomats or soldiers or intelligence officials. And, you know, this was a foreign culture to us that 
we never really got our arms around. We, we kept sending people in for short tours of a year or less, and we'd cycle people in and out, but we just didn't build much institutional knowledge mm -hmm. or understanding of Afghanistan. And there's no question that played an enormous part in the failure of the war over two decades. Indeed, there's so many parallels to Vietnam. It was said after the defeat in Vietnam that we weren't there for 15 years. We were there 15 times for a year. I'm finding, I'm hearing echoes of that and the experience with Afghanistan. We weren't there for 20 years. We were there 20 times for a year. Yeah, if I can give you one example of that, you know, there's a, an interview in the Afghanistan papers where he's talked about how there was an Air Force general, a brigadier general, one star, who actually self-taught himself Pashto, another major language in Afghanistan, before he went over for his deployment. And he gets there to military headquarters in Kabul. And, you know, within six months, the Air Force decides it needs to send him on his new assignment to Japan, right? Mm. And, he, you know, he's like the only guy at headquarters who can speak the local language. And he was a high-ranking officer. But the Air Force bu personnel bureaucracy back in Washington, rather than say, hey, we really need this guy to help win this war, we're going to keep him in Afghanistan. It was like, nope, he put in his six months, time to move him on to another part of the world. And mm -hmm. so we, we lose whatever expertise or knowledge that is developed. And you just bring in somebody green and it's sort of insane when you look back on it, but the bureaucracy could never figure out how to adapt. Mm -hmm. You know, I've been talking to U.S. Intel intelligence officials for years about this problem, and it seems to go on and on that uh, we develop a, an officer develops a specialty and a familiarity with language, culture of a region, serves there for a couple of years, and then they move them on to someplace different, very different from the Russians, traditionally, by the way. You know, a KGB officer would become an expert on Latin America, for example, and he would work there for a couple of years, go back to Moscow, continue to track Latin American issues and then re be reassigned back to Latin America and always worked on that specialty. And there are new books coming out complaining about this very issue that a very sluggish and dim witted bureaucracy keeps wasting our talents and we end up kind of kind of ending up in these bad wars and not doing very well. You write that fairly early on, U.S. officials started to realize that they had helped create a Frankenstein's monster. And you point to the CIA working closely with notoriously corrupt warlords and power brokers who had political or family connections in Kabul. And a number of people on the ground were reporting on this and worrying about that. Yeah, there is a constant conflict within the U.S. government, between the military, uh, State Department, CIA, other intelligence agencies. On one hand, the military and State Department, particularly during the first Obama term, recognized that corruption was an enormous problem, that the Afghan people saw their government as hopelessly corrupt, run by warlords. and you know, even though the Taliban was really bad, many Afghans saw them as the lesser of two evils. So the Obama administration recognized this as a problem that we we're allied with these warlords. And yet they could never really get the CIA to cut the cord. The, the CIA had longstanding relationships with a lot of these guys, uh, had them on cash payrolls and couldn't bring themselves to end that, that relationship. And sometimes you'd have, you know, one part of the government 
at odds with the other. You know, the military, their State Department is trying to reduce the number of contracts or payouts that go to some warlord, and the CIA is trying to keep the money going. And from the CIA's perspective, I get it. They're, they want information. They want sources who are going to tell them what's going on. It's not their job to create a democratic system or respect for human rights or to worry so much about popular opinion. You know, their job is to get intelligence, and these warlords would give it to them. And the CIA exerted their own influence over them. But again, nobody was thinking long term. Nobody was thinking strategically from the top. You had different arms of the U.S. government working at odds with each other. Right. And that problem can't really be pinned on the CIA. It's pinned on the policymakers who allow these relationships to continue. The CIA doesn't collect uh, information from Boy Scouts. It collects information from bad guys who are on the inside. So it was really a dilemma. They couldn't cut off their sources of information. And of course, the Afghan warlords and uh, bosses, uh, they knew that too. And they played us like a fiddle. Now, well, one, one example of this, I have to tell you, there is a diplomatic cable from around 2007 where the U.S. ambassador at time, Ronald Newman, goes in to meet with Hamid Karzai, the president. And there have been an article in Newsweek, I think it was actually a cover story about just how corrupt Hamid Karzai's brother was. And he was. He, took, he was on the mm-hmm. payroll of the CIA. And on one hand, the ambassador is telling Karzai, look, you need to cut your brother loose, right? <laughs> he, was, he was the boss in Kandahar. You know, this corruption's killing you. You need to cut, you know, your brother, Ahmed Walai, Karzai loose. You need to cut this warlord loose. You need to shut this warlord out. And Karzai looks at the ambassador and is like, your own government's got these guys on their payroll. What are you talking about? You know, why are you lecturing me that these guys are corrupt and they're harming the war? You're the ones who have paid them off. And of course, he's absolutely right. I mean, how do you explain that to Hamid Karzai? You know, we're, we're enabling the corruption, uh, and yet we're complaining about it out of the other side of our mouth. Mm-hmm. What was the CIA's position on the opium industry? I know that there was a lot of uh, back and forth uh, and uh, hair pulling over our relationship in Helmand province in particular with the uh, opium kingpins. I don't know that if CIA had a particular position on opium, but the thing was, they again, they had relationships with a lot of warlords and governors and provincial security chiefs who were growing wealthy off the opium trade. Uh, and it wasn't just CIA. I mean, State Department, too, and the military. Again, you're sort of in bed with certain allies who certainly aren't pure, certainly aren't democratic. You know, they're getting rich off the war, whether it's from drugs or defense contracts. And we were in bed with these guys across the government. And this was, again, another riddle that we could never resolve was, on one hand, the United States had spent over $9 billion during the war to try and do something about opium in Afghanistan. The problem only grew worse. And sure, on one hand, the Taliban's profiting off it, but the Afghan government's probably profiting off it just as much from people who are in power getting a cut. Uh, And frankly, it's it's such an enormous part of the economy that there are estimates that maybe one third of economic output in Afghanistan was being generated by drugs. So what do you do? You know, we're in there trying to tell Afghan farmers to cut it out. We're eradicating the poppies in their fields. But that was the one economic success story of Afghanistan was growing opium poppy. And we just never figured out what to do about it. 
there's a lot of teeth gnashing going on about the generals who constantly painted a bright picture of the future in Afghanistan. It's actually that that's at the heart of your book. They knew privately that it wasn't going well at all, but they continued to uh, assure the White House and other officials and American public in particular that it was going well. What about CIA officials? They were testifying in secret that it wasn't going so well, right? Did their analyses make it into the public sphere? A little bit. So as you know, each year, the intelligence chiefs go up to Capitol Hill and they give their assessments of global threats to the United States. And of course, each year they get asked about Afghanistan as, as well as a lot of other places. So they weren't speaking in public very much, but there's no question that their assessments of how the war was going in Afghanistan was far more pessimistic than what the generals were saying. And sometimes this tension erupted in public. In 2012, as the Obama surge was, was tailing off a little bit, for instance, General John Allen, who at that time was a commander of U.S. and NATO troops, he kept testifying in public how we're making progress, we're heading in the right direction, the Afghan forces are doing great, they're going to defend their own country. And then James Clapper, who was then the director of national intelligence, got up in the Senate and testified that, you know, gave a much different picture. I mean, he was sort of careful about how he said things, but, you know, his assessments were pretty sober in saying that corruption remained a huge problem. The Afghan army and police weren't all that great. And Clapper was asked by some senators, wait a second, you know, your assessment's very different from what we keep hearing from the generals about how we're making progress, we're turning the corner, we're going to win. That's not what you're saying at all. And Clapper sort of laughed a little bit and said, forgive me, but I came of age during Vietnam and I was a personal briefer for a time for General Westmoreland. And, uh, you know, essentially he said the generals always hate our intelligence assessments because the generals are always putting a gloss on things and they don't want to hear what we have to say from the intelligence agency. So he said this is just wasn't something peculiar to Afghanistan. It's just a tension that's been there for decades. But you're right. I mean, the CIA and other intelligence chiefs, they don't speak in public very much. They don't make their assessments public most of the time. Uh, but there's no question Congress was getting those assessments. The White House was getting those assessments. And the generals were always, always more optimistic and positive than the intelligence agencies. Well, there was one general who straddled both the public military face and the intelligence community. And you cite his testimony in February 2012. That was Lieutenant General Ronald Burgess, the director of the Defense Intelligence Agency, who gave an assessment to the Senate Armed Services Committee and said Obama's troop surge and war strategy had done little to deter the insurgency. So what do we what lesson do we draw from this, Craig? Well, but Burgess is sitting there right next to Clapper while he's saying this. You know, he's there as an intelligence official. He's not a war commander out in Kabul. So, you know, that again gets to the divide between intelligence officials and, and the, the commanders out in the field. Going back to lessons that we can take away from this. I mean, we were supposed to take away a lot of lessons from Vietnam, but they uh, got lost. I remember being at a conference on terrorism back around 2010, where uh, John Nagel and other officials were just uh, exuding excitement about a uh, new counterintelligence strategy, uh, excuse me, counterinsurgency strategy, as if they had never uh, really examined 
the history of counterinsurgency in, in Vietnam and, and it's striking. So what's what's the lesson that we draw from this? What's the lesson that the U.S. intelligence community should draw from this? That they should go public with their disagreements to keep us from plunging into another disaster? That's a good question. I think the lesson is we have very short memories. I mean, the, the irony here is that when the war started, President Bush was asked uh, at, I think, one of his first press conferences after the war started, he was asked, are we going to get stuck in a quagmire like we did in Vietnam? And Bush was ready with an answer. He said, no, no, we've learned our lessons from Vietnam. We're not going to send large numbers of conventional troops to go fight a guerrilla enemy. We're not going to do that again. And we're not going to do what happened to the Russians as far as them sending uh, enormous numbers of troops to Afghanistan. We're, we're not going to get stuck like that. You know, here's the president of the United States, a commander in chief, being keenly aware, acutely aware of these lessons from the past and promising not to repeat those mistakes. We end up doing it anyway. It's like we can't help ourselves. But uh, you know, we kind of slowly get dragged into it and we don't know how to get out. So it wasn't that people forgot or they didn't know. They knew what happened in Vietnam. They knew what happened to the Russians. And yet, we did the same thing anyway. How do you explain that? I, I don't know, but it wasn't that we weren't aware of it. You know, we, the president himself spoke to it very directly and promised it would not happen. Well, of course, this is a very fundamental question, Craig. One of the observations that many people made in the wake of the Vietnam disaster was that money and power drove these generals and politicians to keep feeding a war machine that had very little prospect of victory. Do you think that was also uh, in play here in Afghanistan? I understand the suspicion, and I understand why people wonder about that, because it's hard to come up with a good explanation for why we kept things going. I guess, I mean, that may be, that may be, I don't know, but my take's a little different. I think, to me, the reason the war dragged on for as long as it did is Nobody wanted to admit they were losing. Nobody wanted to take responsibility for the fact that a war that was initially very popular with Americans, you know, Bush had 90% approval ratings uh, six months after the war started. The American people thought this war had been won. They thought we had been victorious, that it was a clean win, so to speak. Well, after that, everything started to go downhill after 2002. Slowly we started, you know, the Taliban gradually regrouped, but you know, we hit the peak in, in the spring of 2002. And what general, what president, what ambassador, you know, who wants to admit that they lost the war on their watch? Who wants to admit that things started going south while they were in charge? Nobody wants to admit that politically or for career reasons. So I think the instinct is to try and double down and find a way to make it work, you know, whether it's throwing more money or more troops at the problem. Rather than admit that it was an unwinnable war or that these problems were unsolvable and we should cut our losses and get out, people doubled down and tried to find a way to win. Because I think, personally, nobody wanted to take responsible for, for what happened under their watch. It's a pretty dour picture. I suppose the only bright shaft of light here is that we have no place else to fight a guerrilla war. We're kind, of, we're kind of out of theaters. The Be experts, careful, Jeff. Be careful. Experts I've been talking to say that uh, it's very unlikely that uh, President Biden is going to double down on counterinsurgency in Africa. They want to look at 
China spend their energy on dealing with Russia. And uh, really, you have to uh, look far and wide for the prospect of another war in some other country in the world where we're going to go to war again. So I think that chapter is over. I hope you're right. But you have to remember, too, I mean, the irony here is President Bush, when he ran for office against Al Gore in 2000, he ran against this idea of nation building anywhere in the world. You know, he was adamant that we're not going to get the U.S. military involved to build up another country that was broken down. And he was criticizing the Clinton administration for what it had tried to do in Somalia and Haiti and the Balkans. And he's like, we're not going to do that again. We're not going to get stuck in a big nation building exercise. Mm-hmm. Right. So, of course, what happens is 9-11 happens and we get stuck in the biggest nation building exercise ever that failed miserably. So you'd think Bush was he knew better. He didn't want to do this, but things happen out of our control. and We don't always respond the way we think we might. So I, I hope you're right that we won't get stuck in another grill war. I'm sure there's no appetite for it, but things happen and we'll just have to see. That's been Craig Whitlock, author of the Afghanistan Papers, A Secret History of the War. I really appreciated the conversation about the lack of language skills, something that, as you mentioned in the interview, has come up in a number of of different interviews that we've done over the last several months. One story about this, when I was a reporter on temporary assignment in Israel, I was covering a court proceeding involving John Demyanyuk, who was accused of being a Nazi prison guard. Hebrew was being spoken in the courtroom. This was Israel. And there was Ukrainian translation for Demyanyuk. I spoke neither of those languages. And I was relying on the translation of our driver. Midway through the proceeding, a reporter sitting in front of me turned around, shook her head and said, no, 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 your guy is getting it all wrong. She was kind enough to fill me in on what was actually being said and done in the courtroom afterwards. But I resolved then and there that if I was ever going to be given a permanent assignment overseas, there was no way I wasn't going to learn the language. Important for reporters, important for diplomats, important for spies, important for soldiers. Yeah, you know, uh, I think back to my time in Vietnam. When I arrived in Vietnam in November 1968, I was one of the very few military intelligence case officers who spoke Vietnamese. I'd spent a year in Vietnamese language school before I went there. And this is after intelligence training. The only problem was that every time I opened my mouth and spoke Vietnamese, I kind of identified myself as a spy. So, but what do you learn along with the language is the cultural differences between the various groups and tribes and so on. And there's just no substitute for studying a language and learning the culture. Unfortunately, the CIA has had a habit of parachuting in people who have no background in a particular region and shifting them back out after a year. Uh, As we've heard many, many times over the past couple of weeks, we weren't in Afghanistan for 20 years. We were there 20 times for a year. You know, I've heard, Jeff, from some government agencies that they don't want to keep people on the ground too long in one country or in one region because they're afraid they're go local and they will lose their perspective on events. But clearly, um, these interviews have identified a real downside to following that policy. It's not only that, they get the expertise in the local region and they begin talking back to headquarters and headquarters doesn't like anybody telling them that they know more than they do. So that's that's been a problem for 
as long as I've been involved in intelligence and writing about intelligence. That's just the way it is. And that's the way it is this week at the Spy Talk podcast. I'm Jeff Stein. And I'm Jean Meserve. Remember to subscribe to Spy Talk on Substack. Have a great week. For more original reporting and insights like this, subscribe to spytalk.co on Substack and follow us on Twitter at talk underscore spy. If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.